Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 135 with Andrew Sherman, Esquire. Andrew is a law partner who has a lot of perspective, is a passionate, concerned citizen about the crisis of disengagement. So you're going to learn, one, how to use Gallup's numbers to improve engagement in the workplace. Two, Andrew's three C's for team building. And three, insights from the how was your day test. So if you'd like to check out the transcript and the links to items mentioned and such, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep135. And while you're over there, I do recommend you check out some of our extra resources from the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course that will help you slash through some of the waste that occurs in your work week to the gold nugget email summaries. If you wish you could take notes, but you're on the go and can't, not to worry, we take those notes for you. But for now, here's Andrew's story. Andrew Sherman is a partner at Safarth Shaw, LLP, an adjunct professor at both the University of Maryland and Georgetown University, and a prolific author with nearly 30 books to his name. He has also served as an advisor to Fortune 500 companies and has been featured on CNN, NPR, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and many others. Here's Andrew. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Oh, it's great to be here, and I... Wish I had a name of a podcast that was as awesome as How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. So this is going to be fun. Oh, thank you. No, I think it will be fun. Well, I don't know where you'll find time for a podcast. You're already quite prolific. And I kind of just for kicks wanted to know. So you've written almost 30 books and you're also a partner at a law firm. So you're billing hours, you're selling work, you're providing leadership. How do you find the time to churn out just that much content? Well, I'm 55 years old and I've slept about 30 hours in the last 30 years. I do need to sleep more, I think, as I get older, but I've always thought sleep was overrated. But I think some of it is time management and some of it is a bit of a problem that I have, Peter, that I see a problem in society. And instead of just having a glass of wine or, you know, talking about it with others or forgetting about it, I feel the need to write a book about it. And, you know, if you look at my last three books, They've all been where I have a concern as a citizen. You know, my prior books before that were around things that are part of my day-to-day practice, and I thought it was the fair thing and the right thing to share my knowledge with people about what I do and hopefully be helpful to entrepreneurs and growing companies. But these last few books have been a little bit outside my comfort zone in a good way, trying to challenge myself to help solve things as I see them. But also, you know, admit to people up front, hey, I don't have 35 years in HR consulting. You know, this is a book that I write more as a fellow concerned citizen than I profess to be a subject matter expert. But of course, by the time you write the book, you end up being a subject matter expert on all the research you've done. Oh, absolutely. Well, and that's kind of, you know, a real skill set the lawyers have, right? Is that research that get to the bottom of things that, you know, writing and being succinct and sharp and clear with argumentation. So I'd like to hear the story, you know, concerned citizen. How did you end up becoming concerned with disengagement and feel the need to write this book, The Crisis of Disengagement? Well, thank you for asking that question. I mean, uh, that's a nice slow pitch down the middle. I know, <laughs> I know it's tougher as we go, but you know, you kind of envision a triangulated 
set of knowledge. And a book I wrote about five years ago when I was concerned that governance and leadership was broken in our country was a book called Essays on Governance. And in that book, I talked about the importance of good governance and the trickle-down effect that it could have on culture. Then I wrote a book called Harvesting Intangible Assets, and it was all about building a culture of innovation and the agrarian metaphor to serve and drive the innovation and innovation harvesting and monetization and commercialization process. And I thought I was kind of done, you know, that I had all the bases covered. I started working with some companies in the areas of innovation counseling, and I realized that, you know, in some cases, the culture was so dead, the culture Mm -hmm. was so apathetic that there couldn't be innovation. It's like, you know, coming in and asking people that hate their jobs to be rolling around in bed at night at three o'clock in the morning to figure out a way to make their companies better and stronger. I mean, it just wasn't going to happen. Right. No more than a divorced couple is going to produce children. So I felt that if I could finish the last leg of the stool, and if you were to sit down on a weekend where you had absolutely nothing better to do and read essays on governance, harvesting intangible assets, and the crisis of disengagement, that you might be able to come up with an overall strategy for really improving productivity and profitability and creativity and all the things that so many companies of so many sizes and so many industries are all striving to get out of their people, but can't seem to do it. So I'm just hoping that this book helps move the needle a little bit. Okay. Well, so I'll zoom in on the workplace here for now. I know that you reference Gallup's numbers as just about everyone does if they're thinking about engagement or disengagement. And so, well, you'll probably have them more top of mind than I do, but could you give us the lay of the land in terms of what those numbers say in terms of the state of disengagement and, you know, your own opinion on if those numbers seem about right to you or you think Gallup's trying to sell, you know, some consulting for uh, engagement products and services and such with their crisis? Yeah, well, so a couple of things. Number one, I was inspired in part by the Gallup State of the American Workplace Study. And I do think that, you know, if you're tuning in today to this podcast and you're interested in the topic, you kind of have to, you know, it's like reading Drucker on management. You know, you kind of have to go to the Gallup study and read the latest report, which came out just a few months ago, the updated state of the American workplace. And then you decide, you know, which parts of it really speak to you and which parts of it don't. When I read it, the numbers were a little different, but in the update, let me give the breakdown for our listeners. In the latest version, which came out, unfortunately, after my book was already published, so my numbers don't sync up with the latest study, but they basically break down the numbers as follows. 33% of the workforce is either engaged or highly engaged. Within that 33%, 29% describe themselves as engaged, and 4%, only 4%, describe themselves as highly engaged. I mean, four out of 100 workers go the extra mile, stay up late at night thinking about the company, are aligned completely with the company's mission. The 29% of the 33% They're engaged, but, you know, they're still looking around for other opportunities. They sort of, you know, they're the classic B-plus student. They're going to do work, and they're going to do it fairly well, but they're not going to be your top performers in the company. 51%, the largest number, are basically just there, you know, doing what's necessary to keep their job. They are, you know, sort of classic workplace zombies. You know, they purposely go out of their way to stay under the radar screen, you know, it's not a workforce, and that's really one out of every two workers 
that you're going to grow your company with. And then the really concerning one, which is actually down from 19% to 16%, though that's not a movement I would get excited about, are the actual actively disengaged. These are the classic saboteurs, you know, the people that are literally working against the success of their boss and their teams. They hate the company. They hate the workplace. They're like that guy that sat in the corner cubicle from office space. And yet they're not leaving. And here's the problem. You know, if you do the math, that's 16 million people. Right. I mean, 16 million people are massively discontented. 16 million people are actively trying to recruit others into the subject of actively disengaged. Now, you ask me, what do I think of these numbers? I think the numbers are about right. I mean, if you think about it, how many times have you as a consumer experienced bad service? Not just bad, but bad, bad service. There's your 16 million actively disengaged. How many times have you walked into a store or a hospitality experience or a business-to-business setting and said, you know, I'm walking out of here not exactly delighted. You know, my needs were met, but just barely. There's your 15 and part of the 29%. So, you know, I just think that if you walk around almost like, you know, the equivalent of that thing on your wrist that counts your steps, if you were to walk around all day and decide how delighted are you as a consumer and Bob Gap, you know, I have several guest contributors, Bob Gap, that talks about disengagement and the impact on the customer experience. You know, these numbers are about right. And where I try and unpeel the onion of the numbers is I say, okay, what can we learn from these numbers? What are the ways that we can improve them? But that's what, you know, I tried to go further in my own research and figure it out. And I can share a couple of high-level thoughts, but, you know, I'm sure you have some additional questions about the Gallup numbers. But one of them is, I believe, maybe I'm a glass half full kind of guy, but I believe that the real opportunity in this country is the 51%. Because the 51% are the workplace zombies. You know, they're really open to either being pulled up into the 29%, if we could figure out a way to engage them, but they're also just as likely to be recruited into the ranks of the 16%, and then we've lost them. You know, then they're truly actively disengaged. I mean, imagine the GDP impact and the productivity impact and the profitability impact and our global competitiveness impact if 4% became 5 or 6 or even 7. I mean, you'd be talking about additional marginal increases in productivity like this country's never seen before. You know, yes, that's potent and exciting in terms of possibility. And I'd say that I think I buy those numbers when I was doing sort of consumer surveys to see if this podcast, anybody cared <laughs> about, right. about 4% of those surveyed said that they would be interested in listening to such a thing, which sounds like a highly engaged thing to do, listening to a podcast about being awesome at your job. Exactly. And I was just going to, you took the words out of my mouth, which is, you know, just the name of this podcast, which I love, I'd already told you once, I'll say it again. If only 4% of those surveyed were even interested in listening to how to be awesome at our job, that's scary right there. Mm. You know, but I do think that I'm a little bit more optimistic. And by the way, we'll get to this, I'm sure. But one of the things I found in the book relative to the numbers is that there wasn't a lot of distinction between, you know, millennials versus baby boomers or other age groups. The study doesn't really break down a lot around size of company or nature of industry. You know, we're left with these broad-based 
numbers around, you know, the American workplace. We don't know if tech companies have higher levels of engagement and manufacturing has lower levels of engagement. So there's still a lot of work to be done on the research. But the fundamental title of your podcast begs the question, how many people do we have in the country that are really interested in being awesome at their job? And, you know, I'd like to see you have 100 million listeners. A, it would be hands down the most popular podcast ever. (laughs) But secondly, it means people are interested in being awesome. And that's the part that's been really troubling me is how many people set as their goal awesomeness in the workplace versus people that are setting awesomeness goals outside the workplace or have no awesomeness goals set for themselves at all in anything in their lives. Yes, it's the state of affairs. It's where we are right now. And so well, I guess I'd like to know then, your subtitle mentions how apathy, complacency, and selfishness are destroying today's workplace. Now, I'm curious, is there a distinction between apathy and complacency, or it just have a nice ring to it and you're creating the title or some keyword searches or something, in uh, terms of are these yeah. meaningfully different prongs that we should be thinking about attacking? It was not the result of word searches or <laughs> good subtitles, although now that you make me think about it, I should probably check those out. To me, apathy and complacency are slightly different things. Apathy is when I stop caring. You know, I've lost interest in this relationship, personal relationship, work relationship. I just don't care anymore. Mm -hmm. Complacency is a little bit different. It's around my behaviors, around productivity, efficiency. You know, I could be complacent without being apathetic. I could be apathetic without necessarily being complacent. How would I do it? Well, I would be upset. I would not be relating to the job, but I might be productive because I'm still looking for a raise. You know, that would be apathy without complacency. With complacency, I'm actually interested in doing a good job, but no one's given me any leadership or guidance or coaching or mentoring on how to do it. So I agree with you. The distinctions are subtle, but in my mind, they're there. And I think it goes to one of the recommendations of the Gallup report was that we leaders, we people who are awesome at our job and want to be awesome at our job, need to take on the role of coaches and mentors. You know, very successful athletes often go on to coaching because to them it's a form of giving back. They don't want to leave the sport where they excelled and they become great coaches and they commit themselves to being great coaches. And that's what, you know, I want to see happen in the workplace. I want those people that have been awesome at their job to give back by coaching and mentoring those who want to be awesome in their job. And so, you know, that component of complacency is part somebody's mindset, but in part a failure of American management, you know, which was part of the opening of the latest update to the Gallup report. And in that regard, you know, I totally agree with Jim Clifton, the CEO of Gallup. I think that, you know, when he says stuff like we've reached the point where traditional leadership practices are failing so badly that they now require a full disruption, I think he's right. That's not an attempt to sell consulting or data. I think we need more awesome managers and we need to define what awesomeness constitutes in the field of management, governance, and leadership. All right. Well, so then let's talk about some of those practices then associated with what excellent coaching and mentorship looks like in practice, what were some of your discoveries associated with the optimal interventions or practices we should be tackling if we want to get engagement moving in a great direction? Well, first,
we do need to bridge. There is a gap in the workplace between the millennials and the baby boomers about managing expectations, about the baby boomers not being fearful. I mean, millennials will be the majority of the workforce within five years, and we need to bridge that gap. The criticism of the millennial worker is expecting a trophy if they come in seventh place. You know, we parents did that. I mean, you know, we can't blame somebody for expecting a trophy if we've been giving them trophies since they were three years old, no matter how they did. And so I think one is to chip away and build stronger bridges of communication and coordination between the generations that are in the workplace today. Another is to get at this diversity issue once and for all. We still have work to do there. I would again cite Clifton's observation about the importance of taking on more of a coaching and mentoring mindset in leadership as opposed to a, I am your boss and you will do these three things. Another, one of the things that my research uncovered is if you survey the average person and you ask them, how is what you do all day aligned with the overall mission of the company, you get blank stares. If you ask them, how is the mission of the company tied to your reward and compensation, you get blank stares. So if you're tuning into today's podcast and you are an HR manager, an HR leader, you know, it's time we sit down and really revamp org charts, revamp compensation and reward systems. I mean, you know, I don't think we can continue to sweep that issue under the rug and just hope it gets better. So those are some top line ideas that I talk about in more detail in the book. Okay. So I think that's pretty helpful is that connection between mission and what you're doing right here, right now. And in some ways, it's many companies struggle with poor mission statements to begin with that are unclear and unfocused and written by committee. So, but I just, I still funny, I still remember Bain and it was like the mission of Bain and company is to create such extraordinary levels of economic value for our clients that we redefine our respective industries. It was so dead clear. It was like, that's what we do here. And this is what I, I'm making the slide <laughs> is so that yeah. our client is going to make more money and when we're done. So there was something to that in terms of there was no ambiguity and I dug it, but I think most folks are kind of sitting in a spot where at least in the short term, you know, the mission is some vague amalgamation of remake everyone feel great from our shareholders to our employees, to our customers. And we are innovative yeah. and inclusive and diverse and community focused. It's just kind of like we sort of are everything to everyone. And that's, well, you know, not a reality in terms of, you know, no one can be everything to everyone. No, and you're totally right. And look, people see those words on the page, but if the company's not living those words, then, you know, it's bullshit. But, you know, look at the title of your podcast again, okay? Awesome at your job. Well, awesome says who, right? I mean, you can declare yourself awesome, but really awesomeness at its core means that when I come in to work every day, I'm doing the things that will advance the mission and the values of this firm. That's awesomeness, at least as I define it. But many people you know, and this is where the disconnect in the Gallup study is, is people get unhappy when they see a disconnect between their own definition of awesomeness and the company's definition of awesomeness. And then if the company's unclear, then I don't even know how to declare myself as awesome or not awesome, right? I hear you. So, well, now I'd love to hear. So let's zoom in. So you 
are a manager. You have a team of three and you want them to all be highly engaged or move in that direction. What are some, you know, key things you should be doing, you know, right now? Well, first, we need to deal with the elephant in the room, and that is we need to take a real honest assessment of our A, B, and C players. So, you know, if I've got three people, I mean, I may think they're all A players. I may think they're all C players. I mean, I have to figure out where do they fit into this Gallup grid or whatever other grid I'm creating. And I have to be honest with myself and honest with them as to where they fit. Because, you know, if I give you a mandate, say, Peter, you got to grow your division by 20% and you've got 80 people in your division and the bulk of them are either just showing up for work or actual saboteurs, you know, how are you supposed to grow by those numbers with the people that you have? So figuring out, you know, what people are salvageable, what people are really, you know, capable of moving at least in the 29% of engaged is a big part of that process. And what are those acid tests that you use to determine whether or not a person is salvageable? Well, it's not a survey. I'll tell you that. I mean, I think the employee surveys can be helpful, but many people lie or write what they think you want to read. You know, I've asked a CEO client of mine to stop surveying his employees every two weeks because they're just filling out paper. They're thinking they're going to win a door prize, you know, to walk the halls, to talk to people face to face. I mean, we've lost a little bit of our, you know, emotional intelligence, our human interaction. I see people texting each other. They're standing next to each other. I mean, you uh-huh. know, off the phone for a second and look someone in the eye and have a conversation. And I promise you that their body language and their vocal inflections and other poker tells, if you will, you'll be able to tell in about five minutes whether they're genuinely engaged, whether they're authentic, and whether they're the kinds of people that you can build a team around. You know, look at sports. I mean, sports, some of the most successful sports teams that win the championships are not, you know, riddled with all-star future Hall of Fame players. It's people that are genuinely interested in playing together and that are willing to be coached and trust in each other and trust in the coach. And it's no different in the workplace. You know, what does your team look like? Do you have the right players? Are you willing to start making some moves to get the right players on the team? So that would be one. I think another is finding out what people really want. Study after study that I read in writing this book is it's not about money. You know, I bet there's no connection or very little connection between awesomeness and compensation. Which is spooky for for every HR executive everywhere. (laughs) Right. Right. But I really believe that's true. Compensation is an end product. It's, you know, numbers follow. They don't lead when it comes to this stuff. The awesomeness comes from deep inside. And then, of course, if you're awesome at your job, hopefully you end up being rewarded accordingly. But the awesomeness doesn't come from the handing of the paycheck. The awesomeness comes from an alignment between how you're feeling and where the company's going and this sense of peer recognition. I think we need to do a lot better job recognizing our peers, treating people with respect, no matter where they are in the organization. And a lot of that starts from both the top down and the bottom up. You know, one of the professors from University of Maryland in the 50s and 60s that I wrote about, he talks about this concept of mattering. You know, people want to matter. 
They want their lives to matter. And that's more important to them in the long run, as long as they have their basic human needs met. Okay. Sorry, I went off on a bit of a rant there. And so with regard to the mattering, you mentioned recognizing, sort of, you know, celebrating folks. Are there some particular practices associated with recognizing and respecting that we should increase to do more of or some things we should decrease like these aren't working, you know, do less of those specific activities? Well, we need less of like, you know, free soda Fridays and hey, we're going to really increase our engagement. We're putting a ping pong table in the kitchen now. So feel free to play ping pong whenever you want. You know, that's not what increases engagement. People want to feel like part of something larger than themselves. They want to feel like they can go to work every day and be excited about getting up in the morning. You know, one of the tests that I have and is kind of a story attached to this is this honey, how was your day test? You know, and, you know, no one comes home at the end of the day and your spouse or your family says, hey, dad, how much did you make today? <laughs> right. Right. They come on and say, how was your day? What did you do today? Tell me about your work, dad. And everyone wants to have something important to say. Everyone wants to have something that they did that helped their company, that helped society, that helped another human being. You know, that's a great story to share at dinner. I was affected by this when I was a little kid. I grew up in Philadelphia and we used to have to go through the toll booth to get to New Jersey. And I saw these toll booth operators and all day they just received the dollar and they handed out the receipt. You know, it was pre-automation. I was seven years old. And I said to my parents one day, I said, I bet that's the most boring job in the world. I mean, what does a toll booth operator say at the end of the day? You know, how was your day? Oh, well, it was great. You know, I handed 8,000 people receipts and collected $8,000 at the bridge to New Jersey. I mean, what can they say about their day? So I took it on my personal mission was to make a toll booth operator's day exciting whenever I had to go through a toll booth. So I would do something crazy, something out of the ordinary. Sometimes I'd give them $3 and pay for the two cars behind me, even though I didn't know them. I mean, anything I could do to give the toll booth operator a story to tell their spouse when they got home. And, you know, it was just the thing that I took on, you know, and it evolved into the honey, how was your day test? I want everyone to go home and have something meaningful to share because where does apathy come from? It comes from coming home and having nothing to say for years upon years. It's just to think about, you know, the actual day in, day out experience of yourself or another employee there and see, is there anything to say? It's like, how was your day? Well, I copied and pasted 800 things from the internet yeah. into a spreadsheet. And I get, you know, that has to happen from time to time uh, when that can't be outsourced for one reason or another. But, you know, day in, day out, that's not anything to talk about. I agree with you, but let me tell you a little story. You've probably heard this before, but maybe not all of your listeners have. So this guy stumbles on a construction site and he runs into three workers. And the first worker, he says, and they're basically laying brick, okay? So he says to the first worker, so what are you doing? He says, come on, you jerk. What do you think I'm doing? I'm laying brick here, right? Get out of my face. So he turns to the second worker and he says, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm supporting my two young children and putting them through college through this bricklaying job. And no, it may not be the best job in the world, but 
I understand what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And I feel really good about putting my kids through college. And so, all right, well, that's a better answer than the first one. Ask the third worker, so what are you doing? He says, I'm building a church. And that was his answer. So the first worker, you know, he's clearly in the 16%. He hates his job. He doesn't want to talk about what he's trying to accomplish. The second guy, maybe he's in the 51%. And, you know, he's doing his job, but at least he sees a somewhat larger purpose of why he's working and what meaningful things come to him from his hard work. But the third guy, he gets it. You know, yes, he's a bricklayer. No, it may not be the most exciting work in the world, but he's building churches. He's building schools. He's building places where children will live and work. You know, one of my Georgetown law students, she told me her father, they're from New York. Her father took her out one day and drove her all over Manhattan. And he started pointing to all these buildings where he had done, I think they were in drywall, you know, where he had put drywall. He said, you see that beautiful building over there? You know, we did that one and that one. And hey, I got a funny story that happened when we were drywalling. And they both started crying. I mean, you know, because yes, he was very proud of his daughter, was going to Georgetown Law School to become a lawyer, but she realized how proud he was of all this work that he did that allow her to go to law school, but also the pride that he had in his work. And she didn't realize how many buildings up and down the streets of Manhattan he had touched in some way. And so, you know, what are you doing? Are you laying brick or are you building churches? And leaders need to do a better job helping the employees see what the larger picture is. So even the guy cutting and pasting all day, you know, is doing something that's larger than himself and something that's larger than that task that you described. And I'm sorry if I sound a little preachy here, but I really believe this stuff. And I think we can do better communicating to our workforce why they come to work every day and what we're trying to accomplish. And you're right, from your point 10 minutes ago, it can't be some wishy-washy mission that looks like everybody else's mission. Mm-hmm. And I'd love so to get your take I'm, then. I'm take a sip of water now. <laughs> oh, sure. You know, I'd love to get your take then in terms of sort of the day in, day out. You know, what are some of the key means of helping make that connection, draw the lines? And so that's really connecting and resonating, you know, your action to the mission or outcome or purpose. Well, show people, show them what they're doing, show the larger work, talk to them. You know, we have a couple of guys here at Cyfarth in the DC office that work in office services. I've been here almost a year. I have never, ever, ever seen them not smile, ever. Mm. And they are treated with respect. They are key members of the team. They understand that they're helping to support a busy office that does all kinds of great legal work for a wide variety of clients. I mean, I think that communicating to them where they fit in this organization and the importance that they have to all of us and how we'd be lost without them, and what we're trying to accomplish as a result of them being here, and, you know, just basic pleases and thank yous and showing of appreciation. I mean, you can communicate more with a simple facial expression than you can with a thousand words, and I just think we need to be more sensitive. But that's what we want out of all of our leaders. We want them to act like leaders. We want them to show empathy and passion and compassion and know that that they have laid out a clear path for others as to where they fit in the organization. 
and be willing to get rid of the 16%. Be willing to show them the door because they are not helping anybody and they're not helping themselves and they need, you know, maybe in a different setting, they can be moved up into the 51%. But once they've sort of, you know, checked out of the hotel and become that dispassionate in their work, I don't think they're salvageable. All right, thank you. Well, tell me, Andrew, is there anything else you want to make sure you cover before we talk about your favorite things? I just left last Friday a company that had been around for over 20 years and had their first town hall meeting, their first meeting kind of, you know, with the full set of employees in the company. And the leaders of the company kind of really opened up to them. And there was a lot of interactivity and a lot of dialogue. And, you know, you could say, why did it take them 20 years to have a meeting like that? I'm looking more forward. I bet it won't be another 20 years before that happens. So, you know, I'm a big believer in the town hall. I'm a big believer in communication. I really think that that's, you know, the biggest bang for the buck these days is more collaboration, more communication, more coordination, give people opportunities to work in different types of teams and to really collaborate with each other and see how that collaboration is driving stakeholder value. All right. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I would say a quote by Rabbi Hillel. And the quote says, if I am not for myself, then who shall be for me? And if I am only for myself, then who am I? Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or piece of research? That's a tougher one. I mean, lately, of course, I've been doing a lot of thinking about the Gallup study Uh, in terms of piece of research. I would go back to the mattering research that was done in the 60s and 70s by the University of Maryland and others have written about and really just, you know, basic business fundamentals. I mean, some of these things I mentioned, drunker on management, some of the core basic management philosophies to go back to, you know, the Dale Carnegie's about treating people the way you want to be treated. I know it sounds a little hokey to end with, but, you know, I really believe that stuff. I read those things as a teenager and they still affect, you know, at 55, how I treat others and how I hope to be treated. Okay, thank you. And how about a favorite book? Wow, I'm going to have to go with Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Okay. And how about a favorite tool, whether it's a product or service or app, something that helps you be more awesome at your job? (laughs) You're going to laugh, but I'm still a BlackBerry guy. I did get the new Priv, but love that Snapdown keyboard, man. It keeps me connected to the world 24-7, and I've developed some pretty thick skin about how often I get made fun of. Okay, thank you. And then how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours? I still keep a traditional paper calendar with whiteout and markings. And I just find that even though I'm an electronic calendar guy as well, the touching and the feeling and the looking ahead in the calendar and adjusting my schedule accordingly really helps with my time management and productivity. I think that whatever work habit productivity tool you have, if it's working, you know, keep being open to technology, but don't significantly change it. I think that You get to a point in your life where it's a habit for a reason. And if it's a good habit, as opposed to a bad one, then stick with it. Okay. And is there a particular sort of nugget or articulation of your message that seems to really connect with people in terms of getting heads nodding and retweets happening? Yeah, I would say there's a lot of talk, as you know, about this whole notion of the work-life balance. I offer up a quote 
from the Zen masters at the very, very end of the book. And I won't read the whole quote to your listeners, but the essence of the quote is that the Zen master does not distinguish between what is work and what is life or what is work or what is play. They look at it as one large integrated web. And I've tried to do the same thing. I mean, you know, if I can't look at my play as somewhat being work, then maybe I don't go the extra set at the gym. And if I can't look at my work as somewhat being play, then I'm not going to enjoy being here till eight or nine o'clock every night. So, you know, I would urge people to stop bucketizing pieces of their life as being one thing or the other and look at life as kind of the interwoven fabric that it really is. Oh, thank you. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Take a look at the Amazon site for the Crisis of Disengagement book. My bio and contact information is all on the CIFARTH website. We're doing a lot of work here at CIFARTH in labor and employment law and on the future of the workplace. And a lot of that's on our homepage and check it out. Okay. And do you have a parting challenge or call to action for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? I invite you to join us in the 4% and to work with me and work with regularly listening of your podcast to make sure we get that number to five, six, seven percent before I'm six feet in a box. That would make me very, very, very happy. All right. Thank you. Well, Andrew, this has been fun and I wish you tons of luck with the book and the law and all that you're up to. Well, thank you. It's been really an absolute pleasure being on the show. Please don't be a stranger. I'm going to definitely help get the word out on this podcast and happy to come back for a round two if you ever need me or want me. I really dig that, honey, how was your day test in terms of ensuring that your own experience of work and those you're collaborating with is meaningful enough to have something to say. And it's funny, I think I have too many things to say when my lovely wife, Katie, asks, how was my day? Because I'm so excited about the podcast and the growth and you listeners who just keep tuning in and subscribing and sharing and growing ever larger in number and sending me touching emails. So thank you. I do feel a great sense of purpose and engagement and it's because of you. And so please keep it coming. Tell me what you dig, what you don't dig. Email anytime, Pete at awesomeatyourjob.com. I will respond to you every single message, but it does take me some time when things get busy. So it will come in due time. Once again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links that we referenced here, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep135. And I would encourage you to push the subscribe button for this show. So you'll be sure to hear from our next guest. It's Ted Frank. He is so engaging, as he should be, because his specialty is integrating the secrets of movie makers, directors or producers, if you will, in storytelling so that you can tell compelling stories in your presentations and work environments. So he has a knack for making it simple and excellent. I enjoyed the chat. I think you will too. And I hope to catch you then. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 